Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. As the interest in sleep grows, more attention is being paid to how sleep is related to morbidity and mortality. While there is much discussion about obstructive sleep apnea and cardiovascular health, the EEG may also hold clues about our future health. Sleep age is a new term to describe how the EEG may be used to estimate age and predict mortality risk. A paper was published earlier this year and co-authored by notable experts such as Dr. Susan Redline and Dr. Emmanuel Mignot. Dr. Mignot, of course, needs no introduction. Like many of you, Dr. Mignot's name was a fixture during my fellowship. He is a sleep researcher and director of the Stanford Center for Sleep Sciences and Medicine, He recently won the Breakthrough Prize in Life Sciences for Discovering the Cause of Narcolepsy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Seema, for having me. So I originally was reaching out to you to discuss your paper on sleep age when all of a sudden I got an email and your award was announced. So congratulations on your award. Tell me all about it. Yeah, I have to say I have been on a little cloud for the last uh, few months. Uh, <laughs> this. Uh, it's a big deal. It's a very important prize that recognized my work on narcolepsy. So I feel, uh, you know, a lot of the hard work I've done has paid off. And I mean, of course, I, I realize a lot of other people deserve such prizes, but it's nice to have it. <laughs> <laughs> I understand it is like the Oscars. Is that true? Yes, it looks like uh, the ceremony is going to be very glamorous, you know, as it will be, uh, uh, you know, all the famous people, you know, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, uh, you know, everyone that really counts in the Silicon Valley. Wow. So no Beyonce? And so forth. So, yes, it's going to be fun. And they always uh, invite stars. So I don't know. I mean, I've been hoping that... uh, that uh, a very famous star will come, but I I don't know. (laughs) I think you should hold out for Beyonce. I think that's what you should wait for. (laughs) That's the levels that I'm waiting for. (laughs) So is it it true that your dog has narcolepsy? Yes, absolutely. Watson. So as you probably know, I found the cause of narcolepsy studying dogs. And uh, once I found the cause of narcolepsy, of course, I shifted all my attention to humans. But from time to time, I get phone calls from people who have a dog with narcolepsy. And usually I advise them to um, how to treat them because I'm not only a human physician. It looks like I'm a canine narcolepsy specialist. <laughs> uh, and uh, as a consequence, you know, people call me. But sometimes, you know, these dogs are returned to their uh, breeder. Uh-huh. And it happens rarely. But. In this particular case, Watson was returned to the breeder and I received a call from the breeder saying he said he didn't really know what to do with the dog. So I flew to Vermont, I picked up Watson, and now Watson is my pet. And I had another dog with narcolepsy before that uh, as well, but he just had passed away. So I, even so, I'm not a believer in reincarnation. It was a perfect timing. <laughs> oh my gosh. So do you actually treat? His narcolepsy then? No, he's he's doing fine. I mean, it's a little hard when 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 he stays awake for a long period of time. So, for example, I bring him to my clinic. I have a special waiver, and the kids really love him. 
you know, they love to see a, a dog with narcolepsy. And when he has to work with me at the clinic, you know, it's all day long. He has to be more attentive and so forth. So at the end of the day, he's totally wasted. He falls asleep all the time. He has a lot of cataplectic attacks. It's a bit hard for him when he has to work. But when he has to stay home and just like sleep, it's okay. Huh. That's fascinating. He's a chihuahua, you know. So he's a, you know, he's not a high maintenance dog. (laughs) I have to say, you know, when, when I... It's very funny because, you know, I, I would never have thought of of getting a chihuahua. You know, for me, they're a little bit like rats on legs. <laughs> but, uh, honestly, once you get a dog of any breed, you know, unless you're a monster, you fall in love with them. Yeah. I mean, this dog is so cute. I mean, they they they, they like to please their owners. So it's it's very funny. We we have all these preconceived notions about breeds. But really, when we get a different breed, actually, it's a really completely new experience. Isn't that funny? I have two labs, and they must sleep 20 hours a day. So, <laughs> Yes, that, that's actually very interesting because when, when the dogs with narcolepsy were discovered, they were a question, you know, are they really sleepy? Mm. Because after all, a dog sleeps all the time. So, you know, how can you tell if they are sleepy? Right. So they tried to do a version of the MSLT having the dog stay awake and take a nap for, you know, 20 minutes every two hours. Okay. And they tried in narcoleptic dogs and control dogs and boom, no difference. So the researchers were completely devastated, of course. And someone said, but a dog sleeps all the time. So they modified the protocol thinking that maybe that was sleep depriving the dog to have the dog stay awake half an hour, sleep half an hour. Awake half an hour, sleep an hour, half an hour. And this way they could see that there were a huge difference in sleep latency between the narcoleptic dogs and the control dogs. So I think it's very important to adjust, you know, narcolepsy to the canine huh. world. Wow. Yeah. So that's that's fascinating. Now I'm thinking about my dogs and I'm thinking about whether they need an MSLT or not. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be normal. So talk to me about sleep age. This is fascinating. Mm -hmm. So sleep age is actually a a notion that was first pioneered by uh, Brendan uh, Westover uh, at Harvard. And just in general, it's also used in many other instances. It's basically you take any kind of physiological parameter and you try to use it to predict age. And um, that... uh, after when you do a machine learning model, it always will predict an age because there is some information in sleep that correspond to how old you are. But sometimes, of course, it gives you an age that's older than your real age. And sometimes it gives you an age that's younger than your real age. So your sleep may look more like a younger person or your sleep may look more than an older person. And of course, we looked at this difference between the sleep age predicted by the deep learning models of the sleep signals versus your chronological age. And for the people who had an older sleep age than their real age, we found that they were dying sooner. So clearly having a a sleep that reflects the sleep of an older person is a reflection of of, um, more likelihood of of, uh, passing away. So is sleep age something modifiable? Absolutely. It must ah. be modifiable. Um, in fact, uh, I think Brandon Westover did some little study in, in people with um, sleep apnea, 
who have a, an older sleep age, if you uh, actually um, use CPAP, I think you can show that sleep age is reduced. So, of course, among the different parameters that will be associated with an older age will be the number of, of sleep apnea events. And if you treat them, it will also reduce your sleep age. Huh. So how should we be using sleep age? I think right now it's really early. So it, it's just like a global mm. index that predicts age, but we don't really know exactly what's inside. In fact, when we looked at it, it was surprising. I would have thought that sleep apnea would have been a big mm -hmm. predictor. But what we found, it was mostly sleep fragmentation. Uh, and I think, of course, sleep apnea is going to be one, one of the factors. And again, uh, you know, I, it's very difficult to know what is causal to, to the change in mortality. But certainly it looked like it was a sleep fragmentation that was the best correlate of sleep age. Huh. And um, so I guess now the next step is to look more not just how age is predicted by sleep and how this can have an effect on mortality, but directly predict mortality. So that's what we're doing. We have a relatively uh, large grant where we're going to use all sleep information to try to predict if people develop stroke or if people have heart attack or if people, of course, die. But this, this time, we'll not even predict age. We'll directly predict if people are going to have these events. Wow. It's going to be even more powerful. So is that similar to EEG fingerprinting then? Yes, in some ways, that's what we hope, because not only we'll try to predict a stroke, for example, but mm -hmm. then, of course, with this machine learning models, you can also do um, uh, attention uh, modules where really it will look inside the sleep study what are the region of the sleep studies that are the most likely to predict stroke. So you're right. In some ways, the next step is once you find something in the EEG that predicts stroke, is to look in the EEG tra tracing where there is an increase of risk of stroke. And that might really indicate some specific figure imprint, as you say, that is really a marker of stroke. But again, that's, that's uh, still speculative. But I think uh -huh. it will work. There's no reason it will not work. But we just don't know what we're going to find at this stage. This is just starting. And, and I want to point out also that, unfortunately, this kind of study needs large sample. Mm. So, for example, this grant, we're working with uh, Brandon Westover, and uh, we are trying to recruit 250,000 sleep study. Oh, holy smokes. Wow. Yeah, that's a, a big number. Um, but in fact, it, it's possible. I mean, at Stanford, we have about 30,000, 40,000. At the Best Israel, they have about the same number. We have teamed up also with... Uh, uh, Kaiser, uh, mm. South California, and with Emory, because we need also some ethnic diversity. So it's going to be a fantastic study. And all this data will be available. I, I want to make sure that you realize. So uh, that's a new model now. We, we, we are not working all by ourselves. We, we want other people that, who are smarter than us to <laughs> make, uh, use of the data. Oh, I love that. I love that you're making that available. Yeah, it's very important. So it, it makes me wonder, though, how much are we missing because we, you know, we do so much home sleep apnea testing now that we're not getting that EEG. Oh, I'm sure we're missing a ton. I mean, of course, I'm, I'm a bit biased because I'm interested in the brain. I, I love sleep apnea. In fact, I, I, it's not like I don't like it. 
Uh, I think sleep apnea is very important and it's very frequent and mm. uh, you, know, you, you cannot study sleep apnea. And it's also a model for challenging even wakefulness and sleep. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a very interesting area in itself. But for sure, um, the EEG reflects the brain and I have, I have a little bias uh, in my interest in trying to understand how the brain you know, behaves and how the brain will decay. Uh, you probably know that there's a lot of interest now in in Parkinson's disease and RBD and, mm-hmm. and Alzheimer. And what we need very badly is to find things that predict these diseases before they occur. Because I'm sure if you have had the opportunity of looking at the brain of an Alzheimer patient, it's like a shriveled nut. I mean, right. it's too late. It's not going to grow back. We need to be able to, uh, you know, act before. And that's why I think uh, doing this uh, sleep, I, I like to say that sleep is almost a measure of brain health mm-hmm. uh, because we measure all this physiology when the brain is uh, disconnected from sensory input. So in many ways, it's going through an automatic program. And this way, you can kind of see if everything is working a little bit like if you were, you know, checking your hard drive, you know scanning your hard drive, but without, you know, listening to what it's, it's doing. Um, and, and as such, I think, it, especially with the rise of ambulatory monitoring, I think it's going to be extremely powerful as a, as, as a method to, to measure your brain health and even longitudinally, we will probably have even more information than just a spot measurement and looking at what's happening uh, 20 years later in terms of death or cardiovascular disease. Well, but I think that's that's exactly it, right? It's such an important to be able to intervene before. You know, we've talked about Alzheimer's and and protein deposition and all of those things. And imagine being able to identify people at risk or early signs of, and then you know doing something to modify that. I think that is incredible. Yes, you are exactly right. That's that's a dream, and it is. I, I think it's it's going to be possible, but um, it's going to be a best uh, up and down to get there. Because first, you know, we we need to have convenient way of measuring sleep and EEG and everything we need at home comfortably, uh, and then we need all the programs, you know, to make it work. Mm-hmm. And these deep sleep learning programs, which are used to to predict sleep age, they are extremely powerful, but they are also very sensitive to uh, experimental conditions. So you you often have much more information when you use the same device all the time, mm. uh, because you lose you know some information when you try to take different devices and 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 use the information from different devices. There is advantages and disadvantages, but clearly we need to make parallel progress in both the hardware and the software. So, you know, I, I listened to you um, speak a few years ago at APSS on hypnodensity, and you talked about machine learning. Mm-hmm. So is hypnodensity something that you use? You know, is it something that we can all use? Is it something unique to your lab? Oh, no, everyone can use hypnodensity. In fact, I think everyone that's doing deep learning for the EEG and sleep state prediction uh, now is... is uh, can generate an hypnodensity. And I I suspect or I hope that people will provide hypnodensity graphs, you know, for any sleep study because it gives you a lot more information than just a sleep stage. It gives you 
how good is the sleep stage in, we, in which uh, the patient is. And mm -hmm. as you know, this way we could discover that in narcolepsy very often you see that the probability for wake or REM sleep is sometimes intermingled, which reflects this sleep state dissociation. So um, I think it definitely gives you a lot more information about how sleep is than, than just looking at an hypnogram. And it's pretty too. And <laughs> it is pretty. At first, it was hard to figure it out. And then once you get it, you're like, oh, okay, yep, I get it. This is what this color means. Exactly. Um, do you think that we'll be able to identify patients with narcolepsy based on their PSG alone? I, it's not like I know, I know because we've already, <laughs> <laughs> we have already done it and, and uh, it's working quite well, um, you know, almost as well as the MSLT, about as well as the MSLT. So problem we have is to make it generalize, mm. uh, which is often a problem of these models, um, to try to make it generalize to all kinds of devices, all kinds of, of setup, clinics, etc. It will eventually happen, but we just need more data from different uh, um, origin. Like, for example, right now we are doing a study where we have added data from China, from France, from Italy, from the US from Austria, and then there are narcoleptics and controls, and it's working super well, like with, I mean, uh, almost, I mean, as well as the MSLT. Mm. But it's it's still, if we take like a completely new database, you know, a large database, like for example, I work with a company called BioSerenity, which is a company where they have like 300,000 PSGs. Uh, so we, we have tried to scan, you know, for narcolepsy, we find too many positives. Oh. Uh, because, you know, these programs have to see more diverse data before working. That's a problem of, of machine learning. It works very well, but often it's difficult to make it generalized to a completely new setup. So we need to have more data, but eventually it will work, you know, across universally and then it, it will be fine. It's just a matter of feeding it more data and for the program to find what's really specific. Yeah, you're right. Kathy Goldstein talks about that a lot, yes. you know, in, in all of her work on AI. No, you're exactly right. Yeah. So that's a limitation. Yeah, it's a limitation of AI. The other limitation of AI, which I think is very important for, but I think it's a limitation of statistics in general. You can ask the AI to generalize to things that it has not seen. Mm. And the same way for statistics, you know, we always hear these people saying, oh, I'm going to use this questionnaire. It has been validated. <laughs> and, you know, often it has been validated in a certain context. But right. if you use a questionnaire in the context of Parkinson's disease, it may not work at all. I mean, because it has never been used in Parkinson's disease. Right. So it's a bit the same for AI. If suddenly you show him, show the program seizures, if it has never been taught that it's seizures, it, it may consider it slow wave sleep. I'm just making it up. But I mean, it's going to do the best to, to make it fit with a low probability, however. So you might have some information with the probability of the stage that can flag out liars. So there's, there is a lot more work to be done. It's a very uh, effective you know, tool, but there is a lot more work to be done to make it work perfectly. And the great advantage of AI, it never forgets. You know, once it has been presented something, if you teach him or her, I guess, <laughs> if you have seen the movie, <laughs> you know, uh, it will not forget. I love it. I love how you're being inclusive of Siri and Alexa. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about proteomics, Alzheimer's, and much more. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Contribute to the future of sleep scoring by participating in Sleep ISR Record Rewards. Submitted sleep studies will be used to build a diverse catalog to evaluate artificial intelligence sleep scoring software. Labs that submit records can earn points redeemable for rewards. Learn more at sleepisr.org. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. Our guest today is Dr. Mignot, and we're talking about sleep age and the importance of the EEG collected during polysomnography. So, you know, you mentioned Alzheimer's and you mentioned Parkinson's. You know, what other things should we be paying attention to within the EEG? Ah, that's a good question. (laughs) It's a loaded question, isn't it? (laughs) I'm taken by surprise by this question. Um, I, I think there's a couple. Oh, there's so much to be done, but I, I, one thing that I would love is to try to understand a little bit better insomnia, for example. Mm. I mean, I, I think we really have no clue about insomnia. I mean, we we have this subjective feeling: people really don't feel well; they just hate their sleep. We know that there's a very strong behavioral component. There's a strong correlation with anxiety. Uh, for sure, there is some uh, behavioral kind of. Uh, negative feedback and then kind of crystallization of anxiety on the symptoms of insomnia. Yes. But in addition, you know, we don't have really good biomarker in the EEG. And and uh, right now, uh, I, I think nobody has really looked hard. Uh, and I believe we can find better biomarker of insomnia. Another, I think, good area to look at, in my opinion, is also wakefulness. Mm-hmm. You know, as that's my a little bit my baby, of course, because of narcolepsy. Um, but, you know, we all know that when we're awake, we have different type of wakefulness. Sometimes we are dreamy. Sometimes we are concentrated. Sometimes we are, um, you know, tired. Sometimes we are sleepy. And all these state of wakefulness, uh, they, are, they are different. And in mouse, we, we see differences. But, of course, mouse don't have this range of behavior. But, for example, they have a very classic behavior that's called wheel running. If you put a wheel, you know, they love running. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess they're bored in their cage. I have to tell you, it's probably not fun to be a mouse. <laughs> probably not. But uh, the good thing is they love running. I, probably it's like reading a book for some other people, I guess. And what happened is they really have theta-dominated wake. They have a very specific rhythm that appears that's very specific when they're concentrated running a wheel. And we really know that in humans, too, you have changes in theta and in gamma when people are concentrated. And, you know, we know that there are a lot of people during the daytime that complains of having trouble concentrating, mm. of having trouble, brain fog, uh, you know, we and, and sleepiness. And what we are really describing as wakefulness is, is very vague and very simple. It's just, oh, even just right now, I'm doing some study. And I'm trying to convince my my lab to really start to differentiate alpha-dominated wake with eye closed versus, you know, eyes open or, you know, just uh, desynchronized EEG of normal wake when you have the eyes open. I mean, it's it's clearly two different states, right? We also know that when you go to relaxation, you have more alpha. So it's very clear to me that there is different states of wakefulness and that those need to really be taken into account uh, as we... um, as we uh, explore the cause of excessive daytime sleepiness. 
So that's fascinating. I, I've never considered the heterogeneity of wakefulness. Mm -hmm. I am very, uh, I, unfortunately, I always have good idea, but not enough time. <laughs> so, uh, I hope that other people are going to do some of that. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, we, it's going to be a lot of work because then you need to annotate wakefulness, you know, and, and then do some correlation. But you could imagine a day where machine learning could really, again, like predict if you are concentrated, if you don't have enough concentration, if you, you know, maybe some behaviors that are very relevant to not only, uh, you know, sleepiness, but also maybe mental health. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. So you had also shared with me some of your information and, and research on proteomics. So tell me about this. Yes. Um, so that's a, a bit of a different topic. But when I'm sure every all your listeners know about the revolution in genomics, you know, there have been the Human Genome Project, uh, which, uh, you know, has been now is like 20 years old, I guess. And we're in the full revolution of genomic uh, and now you can sequence the whole genome, you can look at all these genetic markers that made you more and less predisposed to diseases or to sleep eventually. Uh, and the advantage of genetics is it's always causal, pretty mm. much, because if you are born with a genetic marker, it doesn't change all through your life. So if it's associated with more sleep, less sleep or narcolepsy, it always has to be causal because it cannot be the result of your narcolepsy. Mm. But of course, genetic factors act through proteins, they produce proteins that then produce metabolites, etc., that change the body. And often these are the end result of, 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 the, of the gene products that are really doing the physiology. And those are proteins. And often this protein can be modified both by genes, of course, but also by the environment. And then they can modify things like cholesterol, for example. And it's a good example, cholesterol levels are going to vary depending on certain genetic factors, such as the enzymes that produce cholesterol. There are certain variants that are more or less active and that will change your cholesterol. But of course, cholesterol will change even more if you eat a big sandwich, you know? Sure. <laughs> so the advantage is cholesterol or proteins are much closer to the physiology, to the way the body is. And there is another evolution that's occurring now where you can now measure thousands and thousands of proteins. In fact, in my case, I measure 7,500 in 100 wow. microliter of blood. Uh, and of course, it, it's the same way as when you do genomic, it gives you a completely different landscape of, of what you can see. Instead of looking only at one thing at a time, you can look at this interdependence of protein and have a, a whole view of physiology. And you can do a little bit what you do with machine learning. In fact, you can start to look at patterns instead of just looking at one at a time, you look at a pattern of change. And this is ideal for me for sleep or circadian, because we know that sleep and circadian, they change thousands of things change with sleep and circadian. So the patterns is much more instructive than just one thing at a time. And that again involves, you know, like complex statistics, but but I think it's a future instead of just even the future for other things. Like, for example, when you do, you try to measure kidney function right now, we only measure creatinine, mm. but creatinine depends of muscle mass as well as glomerular filtration and other things. And you can imagine that if we had thousands of, of creatinine in the blood, you can have a much better measure of, of kidney function. 
So I think I'm trying to kind of do that for sleep as well, trying to find biomarkers of sleep debt or circadian rhythm with just one blood sample. And of course, sleep apnea and, and things like that. And ideally, you want to correlate it to the genetics. In fact, that's something I, I tried to do. I, I was funded by a, um, a donation from, from a, a someone many years ago. Uh, but unfortunately, they just didn't think that I would be able to do it, so they cut the funding. But oh, that no. was a bit the idea of doing the blood samples and then the genetics and then correlating the proteins, the blood samples together with sleep. And I think that's the future. Well, but it sounds like it wouldn't necessarily be um, static, right? You would have your blood sample and then you would have your array and then you would do follow-up after maybe an intervention or maybe yearly or something like that. Absolutely. You're right, Seema. That's absolutely crucial because, of course, statistics have always a bit, a bit of a um, problem when you do what's called cross-sectional analysis. Mm. When you compare at one time point, it's not as good as when you compare the same person before and after, because then then you have you control for the individual. So what you find is much more specific. So as I mentioned, for studying sleep, you know, uh, to predict mortality, a change in sleep is much more likely in the same person is much more likely to predict mortality or stroke, etc, than just sleep at time t. And the same way, a change in protein is much more likely to predict uh, things that are happening or, or a response to treatment, etc. So it's true that we are we are living really exciting times. Um, no, we absolutely are. You know, I've been thinking about um, what you talked about with the EEG and Alzheimer's, and you had mentioned your thoughts about a vaccine for Alzheimer's. Tell me about that. Ah, uh, it's not really related to sleep, but I found something that I think is very important. Uh, but of course, I. I have, I'm a scientist. I could be wrong, okay? Mm. I mean, I have to admit that uh, we need more. I, as usual, more research is needed, <laughs> you know, like the good nerds that I am. Um, but we discovered that you probably know that in narcolepsy, there is this very strong association with a gene called HLA, which mm -hmm. indicates that narcolepsy is an autoimmune disease. And this HLA gene is, is very diverse and very important for transplantation, autoimmune disease. And these different variants of HLA are often associated with different autoimmune disease. And we discovered that there is an HLA uh, subtype that's associated both with Alzheimer, Parkinson, and ALS. Huh. And that was a complete surprise. I mean, I was like stunned. I, I, I can tell you the day I, I, we discovered that I was just jumping around because I, I couldn't believe that it was the same factor that could be involved in all these three diseases. And what's interesting is that factor, unlike narcolepsy, is protective. So there's one particular HLA subtype that protects against all these disease. And for different reasons, we, we think, I believe, that we found how it works. It works through uh, the creation of an autoimmune response against tau, and against okay. a very particular piece of tau that's important for aggregation. So my hypothesis is that when you have this particular HLA, you develop an autoimmune disease against tau, which actually reduce the probability of, of creating tau aggregates, which are very important in these diseases. Oh, wow. And as a consequence, you could potentially vaccinate against this very particular piece of tau, especially in subjects that have this HLA, and you could potentially 
I mean, reduce the project progression of the disease. I, I mean, I don't think that Alzheimer's and these diseases are only tau, because we know that Alzheimer's is beta amyloid mm -hmm. and uh, also tau, and Parkinson is alpha synuclein, but probably also tau, and ALS is of course TDP43, and probably also tau. Tau is a less specific factor that aggravates everything. And I think uh, by maybe uh, using this kind of uh, vaccine, maybe we could reduce the, the spreading of the problem to, to tau. And that will reduce probably the progression of disease. But of course, it's a, you know, it's a dream. <laughs> I definitely want to try. And I actually, right now, I'm trying in mice. That's Are you really? Huh. You, can, you can actually create mice. It's quite fascinating. Where you can inject tau in one hemisphere. And tau is like a prion. So it kind of spreads. And over three months, it's going to spread to the other side of the brain. And you can measure how fast it takes to for tau to aggregate and spread to the other side of the brain. And then you can, uh, we'll try to, we have a mouse that has the same HLA, the human HLA, and we'll try to vaccinate the mouse and see if it slows down this progression. And can if it imagine? works, then we'll do it in humans. Well, but that would be incredibly impactful. Yes, yes. But it's not sleep, but, you know. Well, so, you know, you've been in sleep for a long time. You know what in the last let's say 50 years in our in our field what what are the most impressive accomplishments what stands out to you what stands out to me i think uh, for sure um, um to me the the importance of sleep apnea is definitely one mm. of the big thing i mean there's no doubt that sleep apnea is a super common phenotype that everyone is affected i think we are we have a real problem in our field in defining sleep apnea because the way it's scored is, is atrocious, is not very consistent. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, but we know that it's important for all kinds of uh, health outcome. And, and we, have not, we are not done with trying to understand sleep apnea and its consequences. So that's, I think, I mean, when you think that is, you know, 50 years, nobody cared about sleep apnea. Right. I still remember Dr. Dement. I have to tell you a story because I think that's quite funny. Yes. Dr. Dement was my, my mentor when I was starting to begin to work in sleep, you know, in the 90s. You know, I remember him talking and saying, oh, sleep apnea affects, you know, 20% of the population. And I, you know, and he was saying that in public and I was telling him, you know, you are crazy. You don't want to say that. <laughs> Nobody will believe you, you know? They will think you're a nut, you know? And it's true. Everyone was thinking he was a nut, but <laughs> it was true. You know, he just didn't want to lie. Uh, that was remarkable, you know, because for me, I would have said probably 5%, you know, mm. a few percent, <laughs> just because nobody would have believed me at, right. the, at the time. Does it make sense? Yeah, uh, no, it's incredible. Yeah. So I think it's still an extremely important area. and. Um, well, and you and you've hit on something, right? This is a conversation we've had so many times about the limitations of the AHI and how we need to think beyond the AHI. You yes. know how how do we move to a better metric? You know, we've got our research colleagues, we've got clinicians, we've got um, payers, we've got home sleep apnea testing versus in lab polysomnography. I mean, how do we move forward? I think the problem with moving forward is that too many stakeholders, you mm -hmm. know, 
it's very difficult to move forward when there's so many people who are uh, involved, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but but I think there's two broad ways. I mean, one way is to look directly at outcome. After all, as I mentioned, what really matters with sleep apnea is you are tired, or you have um, uh, you have cardiovascular disease, you have stroke in particular, for example, is, is quite associated with sleep apnea or high blood pressure. So maybe what we need to do is to really look, as I was suggesting, directly in sleep, what predicts this outcome. And certainly sleep apnea will be one of the of the factor, but maybe we can look in a different way. What in sleep apnea directly predicts this outcome? And I mean, we, we kind of know that it's probably more hypoxia for cardiovascular and more arousal for sleepiness. I mean, that mm. seems logical, uh, but I think we, we may be able to, to find biomarkers of, of that directly, uh, you know, by doing, uh, by doing uh, this kind of uh, analysis. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right because there are so many stakeholders and and maybe, you know, maybe there is such a thing as a, a research <laughs> definition, you know, and then how do we apply that clinically? You know, you've talked about sleep age and the importance of EEG and biomarkers. It just seems like there's so much potential. Uh, and- absolutely. And maybe we do do better better with you know OSA phenotyping and more insomnia um, and even what you're talking about with wakefulness. I mean, it just seems like it's limitless. Absolutely. I, I, what I'm hoping to achieve with this broadcast actually is is I, it's funny. I've I've had that discussion with people in the past, but I don't know if people were listening to me that much. But I, I really think that research is an incredible juncture right now. I mean, we, we see that every level, you know, the number, the progress we can make in all diseases, in finding drugs with new models of three-dimensional structures, etc. It, it, it's really a playground that's unbelievable. And we just don't have enough people. Mm. And in some ways, I see a lot of doctors, you know, I mean, I'm one of the few remaining sleep physicians that does research. I'm exaggerating, but I think... <laughs> We are really asking a lot from our sleep physicians, like always working, see more patients, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I I think you, early in your career, you should really try to, to do research because I think it's very bright future, uh, maybe brighter than just being a, a, a clinician. Hmm. Um but that's just uh, maybe that's very controversial. I'm going to receive hate mail. But- no, no. I'm, but it's so important, right? I mean, we do need to to generate this next generation of sleep scientists to further our field. Exactly, and 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 the doctors have to play an active role. What really worries me, of course, always is, you know, I I work with a lot of engineer. I do a lot of machine learning, and of course, I'm not a machine learning specialist. I mean, mm. I understand the concept. But I know my limitation, believe me, which is <laughs> something that is very important to learn. But the key here is that it's so nice to work with other people who know more than you and and be, I, I think we really need to find a way that uh, medical doctors are more involved in the research. But for that, we need to figure out a way that they have a little bit more time. I, mm-hmm. I really see this drive to to um, profitability 
um, you know, is a bit of a problem because then the doctors will become more and more isolated from from the discovery. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. No, you're you're exactly right. And that's something I love about our field. You know, I'm I'm never the smartest person in the room. There's always so many people that, you know, you learn from, um, whether it's at a conference or, you know, in, in day-to-day interactions. I think our field, we're just it's so full of people who are incredibly smart and innovative. And I love the idea of more communication and collaboration between the clinicians and the researchers. Yes. Yes. And and I agree too. I I, I like to say that sleep is at the confluence of several revolutions and mm-hmm. And the revolution in hardware, you know, with all the devices that are smaller and smaller, that soon will enable measuring sleep and everything we need at home. There is a software revolution with deep learning that we have discussed quite a bit. And then there's a biological revolution with the proteomics, the genomics, and other things. And I think sleep is really perfect, you know, in, in this respect. Uh, because, again, it, it's, it's using these three areas very effectively, potentially. It's very data rich. So well, I, and, and it, it appeals to so many people, right? I mean, so we, I think we've, we've tried to encourage, you know, our younger colleagues to choose sleep, you know, either as a, you know, fellowship, but our sleep technology colleagues, you know, really anybody, <laughs> you know, come join us, whether it's clinical or research or what have you, it's a wonderful field. Yeah, we were a little bit sleep evangelists, you're right. And, <laughs> and, and it's true. I mean, I always joke that, uh, you know, I'm trained as a psychiatrist. Uh, and when I go to party, if I say I'm a psychiatrist, either people love me too much or, <laughs> they, or, they, or they're just afraid. But when you have sleep physician, oh, my God, everyone is interested, you know, and that's a very, uh, you know, that's, I, I think it's a wonderful area, of course, even at a personal level. Um, I wish personally that that the dream of demand would have been better realized, that sleep would be less fragmented. Mm. But unfortunately, now is a consolidation of, of the powers in departments, which has happened partially because of financial reasons. I think it's, uh, it's going to be, it's, it's a bit more difficult, I think, than in the past to do interdisciplinary work. Um, but that's, uh, that's the way it is. Well, that just means we have to be more intentional, right? Yes. No, no, absolutely. We have to make it a priority. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So any final thoughts? Final thoughts? I don't know. Is there Um, anything left? (laughs) There's always a lot left, but what (laughs) what do you think is important in your day-to-day practice? Like when you think, of your patients, you know, what, what do you think we should, we should do to, to make their life better? You know, I, I love the idea of expanding beyond OSA. You know, I think a lot of people believe that you walk into a sleep clinic on one end and you leave with a CPAP without recognizing that, you know, the duration and the timing and the quality of sleep is important and treating sleep apnea is just one piece of it. You know, if you treat your sleep apnea and you sleep for four hours and you never maintain the same bedtime, you know, there's a lot wrong with that. <laughs> so we're not, you know, we need to address all of it. No, no. I, so we are on the same page. And I mm-hmm. think monitoring, I think, would, would really help in response to treatment. Another thing that I find is very problematic is even so we consider, I think we consider that people are compliant on CPAP when they use like at least five hours per night for at mm-hmm. least five nights. 
But when you really look at it, it's half of sleep. Right. So, you know, they still, if they wear their CPAPs that amount of time, that means that 50% of the time they sleep, they don't wear their CPAP. So you, we only reduce the disease burden half. Um, I think we really need to be better at, at, at monitoring and finding yeah, better tool. My, mm-hmm. Another thing that I think would be great is if we found better ways of treating sleep apnea, of course. Yes, 100%. We, we all agree. But uh, uh, Well, yes. at least we're all aligned though, right? I think we all recognize these big holes in, in our field and, and we recognize the need. Um, that the needs that are there, right? And hopefully these innovative people, these big, you know, these smart people that we surround ourselves with will help us to fill in all those gaps. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. I'm really hopeful that we will continue to recognize the wealth of information held within the EEG. Sleep aids is a fascinating metric and certainly one we'll hear more about moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think so. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.